All right, if you have a Bible with you, please open to the book of Ruth, chapter 4, Joshua Judges Ruth, or you can follow along in the bulletin where that's also uh, printed. We're going through the book of Ruth during Christmas, during Advent this year, because it's a prequel to the Advent story. Uh, These are Jesus' ancestors, and their story is not only an anticipation of his because of uh, their need for his mercy, but also because uh, they're his family, and he has some family. You think you have a sketchy family. Uh, We're going to look a fair amount at his today. It might encourage you about your own. Um, Have you watched the Rudolph uh, movie yet this year for Christmas? Somebody had. You can remember it. Um, I like the Island of Misfit Toys. That's especially good little metaphor. I think I identify with it partly because the uh, the Charlie in the Box guy's got my name. But uh, I Little Misfit Toys is a funny thing. Disney changed it after the first year because after in the first year, 64, uh, they left the toys on the island and didn't <laughs> deliver them to homes and uh, set the wrong time. So after, in 65, they changed it and the, island, the toys got to go to homes at Christmas. Why do people resonate with the Island of Misfit Toys, though? Unless it's just sympathy for the unfortunate. I think most of us look at the Island of Misfit Toys with some sort of personal connection, though, that we connect to it, that our stories are like theirs, that loss is a big part of our life story as well. I mean, you see potential in your life. You're told if when you're young, at least if you're younger than I was, that you, know, you can be and do anything you want to if you set your mind to it in this world and you get encouraged immensely toward those ends. But before long, you feel like the story of your life is a story of wasted potential rather than fulfilled potential. And failures uh, start to feel like the story of everywhere you've lived, sorrows creep in uh, just because of the things that you inflict on yourself. And then you have what other people do to you in this world that feels like sometimes it completely breaks you. And so start to think that uh, the story of our lives are stories of ruin. And it becomes easy for us to identify with the misfits. Amy Mann has a haunting song called Humpty Dumpty. doesn't sound haunting, but uh, talks about the brokenness in our lives. And she says, all the perfect drugs and superheroes wouldn't be enough to bring me up to zero. All the perfect drugs and superheroes wouldn't be enough to bring me up to zero. And um, her song, too, is easy to relate to. The story that we're reading is the story of Ruth and Naomi, her mother-in-law, whose lives are a total ruin. Uh, Everything circumstantially that could have gone wrong for them has gone wrong. And they start the story in a place of uh, genuine despair and even uncertainty about their faith in God. And through the story, we've seen that God's bringing hope back into their lives, that their lost cause lives are being restored by Jesus, by uh, his um, what we call a type in the Old Testament. Somebody who's uh, like a foreshadowing of who Jesus is going to be, a man named Boaz, who is their kinsman and who redeems everything that's broken in their lives. And. He becomes a restorer of lost causes to them, it says in this passage. And that's why we're looking at the passage as a prequel to the Christmas hope, because the hope we have in Jesus coming at Christmas is that he hasn't left us uh, in our brokenness, that he doesn't see us as irredeemable lost causes, 
but that He comes with great hope for us, hope in His eyes for us to be reconciled to Him and to be restored, to be fully human again eventually through His efforts. And so He's a restorer of life to those who've lost hope. And we see a glimpse of that in Naomi's story here. So let me pray for us and then we'll read this story. Father, we ask that we would feel hope in believing at this Christmas season as we think about what you did for Naomi and Ruth. Uh, we pray you give us hope for what you'll do for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Read with me Ruth chapter 4. It says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, this is the closer Redeemer. This is a crazy setup that I'll explain a little bit in a minute. But the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. And he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who's come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, well, I'll redeem it. Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, huh, <laughs> I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, Your witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who are at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. And may you act worthily in Epaphra and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered um, 
Minadab, Minadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, uh, do you remember the movie Seabiscuit? It won the Best Picture, I think, the year that it was up for it. Jeff Bridges is a man, Charles Howard, who is uh, owner of racehorses, whose life has met one tragedy after another. But the the scene-stealer star of the show really is Chris Cooper's character, Tom Smith. He is an eccentric horse trainer. And we meet him in the movie uh, when we see a racehorse that's broken its leg and is about to be shot. And Tom Smith comes in and says, wait, uh, I'll take the horse. Don't shoot it. And he takes it back uh, to his place and bandages and binds the leg and sets the leg and uh, is going to see that the horse gets well again. So uh, Charles Howard, Jeff Bridges' character, sees this going on and watches it. And he says uh, to him, he says, well, will that horse race again? And uh, Tom says, no, uh, not that one. He says, well, then why are you fixing it? And uh, Tom Smith says, well, because I can. He says, every horse is good for something. I mean, he could be a lead pony or a cart horse, and he's still nice to look at. He says, you don't just throw a whole life away because it's banged up a little. And uh, that's pretty sweet. You don't throw a whole life away just because it's banged up a little. That whole movie is a story of lost causes. Howard has lost his son tragically, and it's cast you know their life into a pretty great uh, depression. He says their jockey's too big to be a jockey, and their horse is too small to be competitive, and their trainer is this outcast eccentric, uh, Tom Smith. Why does everybody identify with Sea Biscuit so easily? Um, it's not just sympathy for uh, people who have a bad time in life. Uh, you get inside the story because it gets inside you, right? They're, they're like me. Right? My story is like their story. Um, and I want to be seen through Tom Smith's eyes, the way he looked at that hurt horse. You know, when he says, uh, I'm fixing him because I can, I, every, every horse is good for something. Uh, you don't throw a whole life away just because it's banged up. And uh, we all want to be loved and seen that way. Sins and sorrows in our lives make us feel like lost causes. What um, the griefs that we experience and also the trouble we bring on ourselves make us feel like lost causes. And if they haven't made you feel like a lost cause yet, they probably will if you're young. Um, Maybe you'll feel like the story of your life is that you were raised badly, that the wounds of your upbringing just haunt you the rest of your life. Maybe your intellectual limitations are going to be the thing that you stare in the mirror every morning or your physical limitations, things that you think you can never change or fix, anxieties that you have as you go through life, or some kind of big character failure. I mean, what's the story of your life, really? What's the honest epitaph for your life going to be? Uh, Squandered potential? um, Or just a story of being mistreated very badly by other people? Um, Naomi figured the story of her life was uh, that God hates me and has turned against me. Call me bitter, she said. I'm, call me Mara instead of pleasant, which Naomi means. She wanted to be called Mara, which means bitter, because God was against her. Everything in her life had gone wrong. 
And she's finding that God um, is not willing to write that as her epitaph. But he's the uh, restorer of lost causes, the nourisher of her gray hair. And she finds this in the arms, in this little baby that's in her arms, Obed. Um, so I'll say this. If you, if you don't resonate with Seabiscuit and the Misfit Toys and Naomi and Ruth, um, Christmas has got to be dull to you. Because it's a story of rescue that you don't need. If you've got it all together, if you're fine, if you're killing it morally and your family's great and you're rich and everything's going great. Um, the story of rescue only is meaningful to people who need to be rescued. And uh, I think that's all of us if we're honest, right? Jesus comes. It's why this is the prequel to the Christmas story to fix us because he can. And because he's not willing to throw our, our lives away just because they're banged up. And that's what we have hope in. It's the story, uh, it's the bigger story of this rescue. I want us to kind of look at this zooming out from street level to regional level to global level a little bit. Uh, street level story is that God has not left Naomi without a redeemer. God has not left Naomi without a redeemer. Old Mara, call me bitter, is starting to hope. But her hope is kind of dependent on this very crazy system of kinsmen redeemers, goels, which is, I'm sure, not how you say it in Hebrew. Um, but you were responsible if you're a man who had a, a family member who died and left a widow to go and basically bring her into your home to marry her and even have children with her if, the, if she didn't have any heirs so that uh, the line could be preserved. It's not something I've seen a lot of cultures copy. <laughs> you know, it, looks, it looks difficult. Um, it never seemed to work that great in what you read about it in the Bible. Um, in this case, the close redeemer who had the first right of refusal, you know, hears about the land for sale, and he says, yeah, I'll take the land. That sounds awesome. And then he hears, well, you know, the ladies convey in this real estate deal. <laughs> it comes... It comes with a wife and a mother-in-law that you also get in the bargain. And he says something like, well, I would put my own inheritance at risk, which I think is euphemistic for my wife would kill me if I tried to pull that. So no, I'm not going to redeem them. Um, but makes for a great ending for Ruth and Naomi because uh, Boaz, who loves Ruth, uh, now can marry her. And they have this baby, Obed. So Elimelech, the screw-up, uh, who was the father-in-law to Ruth, uh, Naomi's husband. His line continues in God's mercy. Not because he was a great guy and you know the cream rose to the top at the end, but because God's merciful uh, to people like Elimelech who don't do anything right. And so here his line continues. And what they say, these beautiful lines, the women there, they, have, they give a weird blessing earlier. We'll come back to that. But in 15, he's... They say this Obed will be a restorer of life to you and a nourisher of your gray hair. Or your old age, it says in my version, a nourisher of your gray hair. And it says they gave the baby a name because a son has been born to Naomi. And of course, the son was born to Ruth, but um, they realize that this is God bringing hope back into the life of Naomi, who has not felt hope in a long time. And they see the beauty of that. Also says that she becomes the baby's nurse, and I can't explain that. So uh, um, sometimes you just have to let art flow over you. Um, 
Here's what you learn with Noah, Naomi, kind of on the street level, though, about how God deals with us, is that um, ruin and sorrow in our lives because of God's mercy are often temporary. And devastating things that happen to us, devastating failures, devastating griefs, uh, often are temporary. Um, and even if, even if they're self-inflicted, often they're temporary. You know, Christians tell stories a lot of the time about how God has uh, restored the years that the locusts have eaten. We'll use one of the prophets' uh, lines. That God's restored the years that the locusts have eaten. And uh, you may be in a pretty low ebb with your life right now, circumstantially thinking about what has happened and is going to happen and what your prospects are. Uh, just know that in God's mercy, our suffering is temporary. He sees and cares and comes to our rescue. And honestly, for a Christian, even, even if the consequences of what's happened to you or what you've done last your whole life, that's temporary too. Yeah, that's temporary too. Life, eternity's long. Life is short. And uh, we, you may look back at what's the suffering and trial of your life from eternity and say, that was like having a bad semester in fifth grade. I kind of remember that it was rough, but I don't remember much about it. Um, Jesus looks at you with mercy and the story of your life is not going to be your failure or your griefs. Zoom out a little bit to the regional level. See, God hasn't left Israel without a Redeemer either. Hasn't left Israel without a Redeemer. And here we get this odd blessing that the people give to, the, to uh, Boaz in the courts. He says uh, in verse 11, People were at the gate and the elders said, We're witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who's coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Um, and Rachel and Leah are sketchy people in the uh, annals of the history of God's people, the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, they were foreigners, like Ruth was, and had, let's just say, uh, atypical marital circumstances, uh, like Ruth has. <laughs> they were sisters. They were married to the same man. So when they say, uh, may this woman be like Rachel and Leah, presumably they don't mean in the polygamous sense, they mean in the fertile sense, so that she will bear many children to Boaz. I guess that's what the blessing means. Um, then they say, and may your house be like the house of Perez, which is also pretty sketch. Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. But like the story of uh, Tamar and Judah is one that you skip if you're smart when you're preaching through Genesis because you just don't have enough euphemisms in the tank to handle it if they're going to be kids in the service, right? Um, just put it this way. Um, uh, Tamar had Perez uh, with her father-in-law. And this was because of a very odd version of this leveret marriage. The nearby relative who's supposed to come in and marry and, and give a child to you. And Onan was the one who's supposed to do that, but he wouldn't do it. And Judah wasn't doing anything about it. And so, uh, so Tamar uh, dressed up like a prostitute, seduced him, had, uh, had um, Perez. So... Um, what kind of blessing is this? May your house be like the house of Perez. Ah, wow, thanks, I think, you know. Um, maybe not. Um, but what you start to see after a while um, is that if you just want to drag the white sheep out in the history of God's people, there just aren't any. 
You know, it's screw ups. It's lost causes. It's people like Naomi and Ruth. It's not like the goody two shoes who has it all together, who uh, follows all advice in life and is super responsible. It's the screw ups. And here, Naomi and Ruth uh, wind up having Obed, and they don't know who Obed is, but we know who Obed is. He is the grandfather of King David, um, to whom all Israelites look to the high point of uh, Israelite history is when David reigned on the throne as a man after God's own heart. Of course, his story is pretty sketch too, right? But what you see in God's mercy is this pattern. It's mentioned explicitly several times in the Bible that um, the effects of our rebellion last for four or five generations, but the influence of God's mercy lasts for a thousand generations. Uh, he looks on you with mercy. He intends the story of your life to be a story of thriving in His mercy. Um, the circumstances of your life should not dissuade you about that. His mercy lasts for thousands of generations for those who trust Him. So zoom out a little further to the global level. You see that God hasn't left the world without a Redeemer either. You get this genealogy at the uh, end of Ruth, these last three verses, and it's it already has the genealogy influence on you where you're just like, this is just names. I'm reading the phone book at this point. Um, if you start the new Testament, you read Matthew one, it starts with a very long genealogy of Jesus from Abraham down to Jesus. Um, but what happens if you drill down on the names is you see that, uh, the ancestors of Jesus, the center channel of the history of God's saving the world and rescuing the world through his son, Jesus that whole story runs through a bunch of lives that are lost cause lives. Broken lives, nobody has any hope for them, black sheep of the family lives. Um, for our kinsman redeemer with a capital K, capital R, uh, to come to us, um, he came through the story of Tamar and Judah. Um, he came through the story of Rahab, who is also mentioned in the genealogy in Matthew 1 the prostitute in Canaan who uh, harbored the spies when they came in, but a foreigner and a prostitute. Ruth the Moabitess is mentioned in Matthew 1 that way. Ruth the Moabitess, Ruth the foreigner in the genealogy of Jesus. And Bathsheba is mentioned also not by her name. She's called Uriah's wife <laughs> because you know her story. The genealogy of Jesus is an island of misfit toys. Right? It's lost causes. And the hope we have at Christmas is that Jesus is a redeemer for lost causes. He's a restorer of people whose lives have been ruined. People like Naomi, who's bitter and broken and compromised. People like Ruth, an idolater, a widow, a foreigner, a refugee. Like Boaz, the old bachelor, like Paul, the persecutor of the church, like Patrick, the Irish slave, like John Newton, the slave trader, like Chuck Colson, the political hatchet man, like Charles Garland, the angry judgmental preacher, like you. I don't know what your rebellions have wrought in your life. I don't know what other people have done to you to wound you. I don't know how much hope or hopelessness you feel about yourself. But I know that the hope of Christmas 
is this, that our kinsman redeemer has come to us to fix us and to be a restorer of life to us. That he's fixing you because he can and he's not willing to throw your whole life away just because it's banged up. Now let's pray.